This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. If you're thinking of submitting a manuscript, either to a book editor or magazine editor, you're likely worried about rejection. We all are. You probably have thought how wonderful it would be to jump inside the head of the editor and know exactly what they're looking for. Dave and I know a thing or two about what editors are looking for because we both have professional experience as editors with major publications. We developed our editorial chops as magazine editors. The short answer is this, editors aren't looking for one thing. In today's episode, we want to reveal the benchmark we used as magazine editors and book publishers to assess whether a piece of writing is ready for publication. We're really excited about this episode and we think it's going to be really helpful for you. But before we reveal our secrets, Dave, how about you talk a little bit about what people can find on our website? So Journey 66 is an online learning community for writers, and we're primarily about coaching. We have a cohort coaching program called Road Trippers, but if you jump on the homepage of journey66.com, there's a quiz you can take to focus your book idea or your article idea. We also have at the bottom of the, if you scroll down all the way to the bottom of the homepage, We have what's called a memoir writing pack. It's like a mini product in which you get two videos and you get an assessment of how you can start your memoir. So it's only $7.66. That's why we call it a mini writing pack. So jump onto our website and either take the writing quiz or you can just pay for the the writing pack. And And we think that you're gonna make a thousand miles of progress in your writing journey. And that's what we are all about and why we are Journey 66, because we want you to make it to your writing destination. So we hope that you take advantage of a lot of the content that we have on our site. You can go and look at lots of blog posts, lots of tips for writing. We have so much for you to help you make progress. Dave, I'm so excited to be with you today because we haven't done an episode, you and I together in a while. So this is going to be fun. I've missed it. Uh, I've missed it too. So Dave, you and I both have backgrounds in editing. Yours is a little bit different than mine. So I thought that we could share with our audience just our background in both magazine publishing and book publishing and where we come from with this expertise. So my first professional job was as an assistant editor at a publication. So I worked for a small publishing house. I think when I left, I was there eight years. When I left eight years later, they had like 13, 14 publications had a bunch of websites. It was back when the web first hit, you know, the internet first hit. So my first four years was primarily as a, as a magazine editor for a lot of magazine houses back in the day. Now there's hardly any magazines anymore. Back in the day, you had your magazine revenue, but you also did what are called, what were called ancillary products. So you do curriculum, you'd have all this content, so you'd repurpose it. And sometimes we would have relationships with book publishers. So we as editors would actually put together book concepts, and then execute the publishing process. In a sense, we were functioning like an acquisition editor for books. So I did that. 
I, my first four years, I was an assistant editor, then an associate editor. My second four years, I was the manager of the new product development area. And so I was responsible for new products. So that was when the web hit. So we were developing subscription websites, uh, downloadable curriculum and books. And so I left that in more than 20 years ago when I started my strategic marketing firm. And then I've, I added that piece in of publishing for different executives and writers through the years. But my, my initial start was, was as a magazine and, and really a book editor or product editor. How about you, Melissa? I have worked on the administrative side of magazine publishing, but I also most recently have worked with shelter magazines as a field editor. And so while it looks a little bit different for shelter magazines because you have the glossy images that accompany the stories, a lot of the same professional judgment that you developed as a magazine editor for mainly articles we used in developing stories that are both visual and written. So I would be looking at stories and whether or not they fit the editorial grid that the managing editor had set forth and just if the writing was good, if the story would capture the imagination of the reader. So I did that for about about four years and really loved it and got a lot of ex- experience just with editorial judgment and what what makes something really great for the reader, for the reading experience. The thing that strikes me about this that I think is one of our first points, I know we have like seven, eight other main points, but one of the key things is that editors are always publishing for an audience, a specific audience. That's really true for magazines. And it's even more so true for books. And I think what was great about your experience on the magazine side is you're always thinking about the reader, what will connect with the reader, what visually is arresting to the reader. And I I think it's a really, I don't think we should, that should get lost early on in this conversation. And we will touch on it again more deeply as the conversation goes on. But before we get into what editors are looking for, let's first describe what the job of an editor is, because it's so much more than copy editing, right? I think when we think of editors, we think they're just in the back, you know, checking for comma splices and grammatical errors and things like that. But editors are so much more than that. So how about you give a broad overview of what an editor's job really is? An editor really has two main jobs, and one is acquisition, and the other is managing the editorial process once the product, if you're a magazine editor, it's all these articles that you acquire to publish the magazine, whether it's weekly, a monthly, or a quarterly rhythm. And if you're a book publisher, you're, you're acquiring manuscripts. The second thing is to actually do the editorial process. And once that manuscript comes in, you have work to do. There's some developmental editing, there's line editing, ultimately there's the design, packaging, working with PR, there's all these different things. So the two main jobs are acquisition and then managing the editorial and publishing process. But in a big commercial house, the editor is always on the hunt for the next best big seller, right? And they're scanning the horizon. They're looking at people who've published in other, you know, smaller venues that have a little platform that has grown. Maybe their book went from 5,000, their first book, and now it's at 15,000. They're looking for these authors that are rising. And so there's a lot of work in looking for new authors. And then there's the work of the negotiation. So that's all part of the acquisition. 
The second, of course, and I mentioned this, is just once the manuscript has been acquired, then there's this editorial process to get that book out the door. Right. And there are lots of different types of editors, right, Dave? Especially Absolutely. At a publishing house for books. <laughs> Can you describe those different editors? So if you, have, if you have the editor or the editor-in-chief, he or she is overseeing all the process. But then if you're in a big commercial house, you might have three or four acquisition editors. They're out in the hunt. But once they get a manuscript in, then they probably do the developmental editing. They might look at the manuscript and say, we're interested in this, but there's some work that the author still needs to do. And so there might be some back and forth. But once that manuscript comes in and it's basically final, then there's, they send it to copy editing. There's a copy editing process typically that happens before it's actually poured into the design template, you know, the actual, you know, the template that the interior the template. So there's the copy editing. And then once it's poured into that, they work with designer or the design house. Sometimes they outsource the design. They'll, depending on the commercial publishing house, sometimes they'll have design in-house. Sometimes they'll have it outside. But anyway, they're working on the cover. And then once that's all poured, then they have to get that book perfect. So there's the proofing process. And it's very extensive. While they're doing that, they're also working with marketing and PR Again, book publishers are horrible at all this, and they're really interested in only if you, the writer, can do that. The only way they'll publish your book is if they think you, the writer, have a way to sell the book. But on some of the, in some of the big, bigger commercial houses, and if you're a big name, you'll get some attention, right? There's connections, like you're publishing with Random House, and the editor that acquired your manuscript knows somebody over at The New Yorker or at some other major publication. And so there's these relationships that can be beneficial, especially with these large commercial houses. So much good stuff in there, Dave, and so many things that we will touch on in these later points. But I think the first point that we want to make about pitching an article or a book idea to a publisher is you've got to look at the publishing guidelines or the pitching guidelines this is the most basic step that an aspiring writer, somebody who wants to publish, needs to take. Because if you go to a website, there will be very strict guidelines of how you need to submit material for them to even look at something. So make sure that you do not bypass this step when you want to get published, when you're looking to get published. Dave, anything else you want to say about that? I violated this rule many times early on in my writing journey where you are submitting, you'll submit something to a publication and you have no idea what they're actually looking for. And I think back to this, this idea that every publishing house, every publication has an audience. Every publishing house has a type of book that they sell to. We did that podcast interview with Jen Risher on her memoir, We Need to Talk, is about her and her husband becoming a high net worth family because of their stock options in Microsoft and Amazon. But she talked about all the long journey of finding a publisher. She finally found a small alternative press out in California. I think it was called Red Hen Press that does a lot of diversity books, a lot of gay and lesbian books. And they didn't see the book on wealth as being an issue, which some other publishers, we can't do a book on, on wealth. They're more interested in books on social justice, which is good. Again, each publisher has its own niche. And if you don't read those publishing guidelines, 
you're firing your manuscript off into the dark and, it, and people will not look at it because it, it doesn't fit. And those publishing guidelines will also give you some indication of word count length that they're looking for. Also, if you need to include a letter before you attach the manuscript that you're submitting. So you, there are just so many helpful tools in those writing guidelines that you got to take advantage of. Now, there are some times where you can bypass that because you may have a connection to the editor. And, you know, if you have a warm connection, take advantage to that. But if you don't, then start with the writing guidelines. And you really simply can just go to the website of the publishing house or the magazine that you're wanting to contribute to and do some research there. So Dave, that was point one is look at those pitching guidelines and the point two you already touched on, which is every publishing house for books, magazines, they all have an editorial grid. And that's what you were talking about. They have a definitive audience in mind whom they want to serve. So for instance, when I was working for Flea Market Style Magazine, we published a lot of home features and people would want their home featured in there. But if they did not have 85% of their home decorated with flea market finds, then we wouldn't publish it because huh. the name of the magazine was Flea Market Finds. So they may have had a beautiful house and it may have been magazine worthy in many ways, but it didn't fit the editorial grid and the story that would go along with it. So again, you have to think through the audience. Who is the audience? What is that publication really looking for? And are you a good fit? This reminds me of, do you remember the woman we worked with at this financial services firm? And she had done a lot of work on helping divorced women manage their money after the, you know, during the divorce and before and after the divorce. And she had written some really good stuff for the company and wanted to write for Kiplinger's. Right. And as you know, Kiplinger's is a big publication and they had very specific guidelines. And I remember one of them saying, we don't want you, you know, trumpeting about tech, you know, the technical aspects of managing wealth. We want your personal, warm, personal stories. And it was just what Kiplinger wanted to publish. And so she submitted a manuscript and it got, it got accepted, even though she didn't have a relationship with the editor. So if you don't have, and this is a really good point that you make, if you don't have a warm relationship, and a lot of us don't, right? Starting out, you don't. Then you have to be really, you have to pay attention to those publishing guidelines. And once you pay attention to those publishing guidelines and whether or not you're a good fit for the publication and you have this manuscript or you have this piece of writing that you want to submit, you have got to make sure that that opening sentence, that opening paragraph grabs them from the get-go. You have one opportunity to hook the editor. So do not waste it. And that is our third point. Dave, do you remember reading any manuscripts that you received that were just dull? <laughs> well, back in the day, back in the so-called day, I worked for a publication that about maybe 30% of its articles came what, what was called over the transom, meaning they were, they, they, people would send them in and, and we would evaluate them and would publish some articles like that. So we would accept, you know, 30% of, our, of, the, of, the, of the content in the magazine came from unsolicited manuscripts. And we had a shopping list of the types of articles we were looking for. In fact, that's actually something you can ask if you're writing for a specific publication. Do you have a shopping list of the type of articles that you are interested in? So, uh, and so you can write to a specific article idea that they're thinking about. So we got a lot of unsolicited manuscripts. And so if you're an editor, you have limited time, just like everybody else. You're going through these and you're going through these. You're scanning the first paragraph. You got the title, 
the first paragraph and you might skip to the conclusion, but you're not reading the middle. <laughs> so if your first sentence doesn't hook me, you're toast. And you might have some really good ideas buried there somewhere, but because of the time issue, and the same is true with book proposals, right? There's, a, there's that line that editors don't read manuscripts, they read book proposals, and that's for the most part true. And so your point about your first, this point here about, you know, editors reject your writing because you don't hook them with your first sentence or paragraph is, is so big. And I think that goes to understanding a cliche. I remember writing an article for a shelter magazine and opening it with a story about how this couple took this threadbare ramshackle 1920s bungalow that squatters lived into this really beautiful home. And I started out with that. And the editor who was editing me in that case said, this is cliche. Everybody starts articles about homes this way. You can't start your article this way. So I guess my advice there would be, if you're looking to pitch an article, go and do some research about how articles start for your, your area of expertise and try to stay away from the cliches and try to be as fresh as possible and you know, have some tension in that opening paragraph and those opening sentences so that you really grab the reader. That is so basic and so elemental. So often we feel insecure about our writing. And I think we could alleviate a lot of that by just paying attention to some of these basic elements and, and feeling confident that, you know, this is a good opening, right? This is, this is a good hook. And if you don't know what a good hook is, start to, to read. You, well, the more you read, the more you start to, to know what a good hook is. But look at, you know, get, take out your favorite magazine and look at the first paragraph of every one of those articles in that publication, and you'll start to see what a good hook is. And the same is true with books. So our next point, point four, is you haven't refined your idea enough. And so this is common too. You think you have a great idea, but you really haven't focused it. You don't have a good thesis. And so the, the writing then becomes too vague and too general. And when writing is too general, it's not going to be helpful to the audience. So point four is you need to refine your idea to have a really focused thesis that you are going to be able to build out throughout an entire article. And that is going to capture the imagination of the editor. We talk so much about this at Journey 66. We have worksheets about this. We have a book course that you can purchase if you want that has information on this. I mean, this is the one thing we do a lot, which is whatever writing project, there's an idea behind that project, whether it's a book, article, whatever, monograph. And that idea just has to be clear. And so there's some time you need to invest in working and refining that idea. So uh, this is just a great point, and it supports really everything else in this, in this episode. Do you want to give a quick overview of what we say a thesis is? So a thesis is, is a big idea. It's the idea that it's the theme or idea that governs your book or your article and we say that every thesis has two components, has a subject and it has a complement. And so an I, that basically every idea is like that. So an idea is, let's say the subject of an idea is, I'm going to talk about fly fishing, the Yellowstone in Montana. Of right? course you are, because you love fly fishing. I, I use this all the time because <laughs> it's, it's the, you know, <laughs> you might think my life is shallow and it is. The only thing I do is fly fishing. It's not true. Got four kids and two dogs. 
So exactly so so let's just say so the subject of my idea is fly fishing in yellowstone and there could be so many different angles that a person could take on that right that's not a thesis yeah one angle could be where you camp when you're fly fishing in montana right and so that's the best restaurants or what gear you need when you're fly fishing so what are you going to say about your topic well i was just going to say why I don't fly fish in Yellowstone in the summer is because of the crowds. That yeah. would be a thesis. And then you could talk about the rising crowds in Montana, blah, blah, right. blah, blah. You yeah. could do some statistics on it. You could talk about the better fishing in the fall when it's cold and everybody's gone. You may be rejected if you do not have a refined idea, if your thesis is not specific enough. Point five is you violate the Berkeley five-minute rule. And this is something I learned from you, Dave. So can you tell people what the Berkeley five-minute rule is? So we had this wonderful man. He was an elderly gentleman compared to me. He's probably 10, 15 years older. I was younger, you know, in my <laughs> 20s. But his name was Jim Berkeley. And Jim came up with this rule as we're evalu- evaluating these unsolicited manuscripts. And it was this. If I can stand at the water cool with a water cooler, you know, that's a metaphor, but if, if two or three editors are standing at the water cooler and we can come up with these ideas on our own in a five-minute conversation, these ideas are not fresh. And, and so sometimes when, we, when, like when I would read a manuscript, you know, here, here would be a good, good example. Somebody would send, because I worked for a publication, it was called Leadership Journal. It doesn't exist anymore. And it was, uh, it was sent out to religious professionals and nonprofit leaders. And so it was all about leadership and it was founded in 1980. These manuscripts would come in just, you know, everybody wanted to write on the topic of leadership. Well, here would be an example of here's five things, you know, five principles of leadership, be courageous. Point number one, handle (laughs) conflict carefully. Point number two, number three, think of others as you lead. And so the Berkeley five-minute rule was, if we could stand around the water cooler and come up with those five points, this manuscript needs to be rejected. And so that was our Berkeley five-minute rule. How do you get beyond that first layer of five bad ideas? How can you determine whether or not editors could come up with the same five ideas you're coming up with that you're pitching to them? First, you have to come up with the five bad ideas or the five bad principles, right? We always talk about that first draft. And I think the first draft, often you lay down some bad ideas. Great ideas often come out of a story. Mm-hmm. And so if you have some really good stories, let's say it's not leadership. Say the topic is, it's camping. Maybe the topic is on camping. Well, you could have, you could look at a bunch of publications and come up with these five principles for your next camping trip, right? You could do that. But if you've actually camped, there's nuance to what you're going to talk about because you're going to talk about specific stories like the time that it rained for two days and how you, and how you manage. You know what I'm saying? So the more stories you have and the more personal anecdotes, sometimes the better the, the, better the principles. And I think also if you say you have five principles for leadership and one is be courageous, what if you framed being courageous in a fresh way with fresh language? Like... Don't lurk in the background. I mean, that's another way of saying courageous, but yeah. it doesn't seem quite so trident. Is there a way to reframe a principle that has been talked about a million times before in a fresh way so it actually catches the editor 
maybe in a unique way. Well, you make such a great point here, and that is everything that you write about has been written before a billion times. And so the issue isn't coming up with something that has never been said before or written on before, but saying it in a fresh way with a unique angle. And so every, every one of us can do that. So that's point five. You violate the Berkeley five-minute rule. Point six is your writing isn't engaging. And this is a hard thing to, to hear. And it's a hard thing to know whether or not your, your writing is engaging. And you really only know whether or not your writing is engaging if you get feedback early on from somebody who is honest, who has professional expertise in actual writing, <laughs> not an English teacher who's looking for grammar, but somebody who understands how to craft ideas and how to craft sentences that touch the reader. So simply, sometimes you're rejected because you just haven't developed the craft of writing and your writing isn't engaging yet. And that doesn't mean that it can't be. Everybody can work on their writing. That's why we developed Road Trippers because we want to help people with the writing as a craft. And you can find so many online resources to help you develop as a, as a writer. Anybody can become a great writer if they devote themselves to it. This is hard to say. Sometimes your writing isn't engaging and sometimes my writing isn't engaging. And I was just thinking about this. I've been working and writing for, gosh, decades now, and I am still going back to all these books I read years ago and rereading things because it, it would be like if you wanted to play the guitar and the first time you got a guitar in your hands, you thought you could play like Eddie Van Halen or, <laughs> you know, whoever, whoever your favorite guitar player, John Mayer, or whoever it is. And that's silliness, right? And the same is true for writing, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to write. It doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to scale the publishing summit. But if you're in motion and you're growing in your writing and you're working at it, that's what matters. So if you're sending something out for the first time and you've never written before, and you get rejected, you shouldn't feel bad about that. That's just part of the learning curve. And so we want our writers to invest in the writing life. It's a lifetime journey. And so working on the craft is so important to get published. Just to add on to that, I think so many people are enamored with the idea of being a published author. And they forget that it takes years of honing the craft of writing to become a great writer. And to get to that point where you are credible enough to be published, credibility is not built overnight, like you said. And we're working with one author right now who has a book deal, but he spent, you know, years writing another book and months with us being coached by us. And he just now is realizing I'm not just an author writing a book, but I'm a writer because he's paying attention to the craft of writing. So don't get sucked into the belief that being an author is the end all. We want people to commit to the writing life, like you said, Dave. Point seven is, and this is a big one, you don't have a crowd for your writing. And this is particularly true with book publishers. And you can go and listen to past episodes that we have done with Harper's Mickey Maudlin. He's an editor at Harper. And he talks a lot about how you have to have some sort of a following, some sort of a platform in which you can help the publisher sell the books. That is up with the quality of writing, and if the idea is good, is this idea of crowd. Do you have a crowd that you can tap into once that piece of writing is published? This is basic. If you're a new, uh, new to writing, you probably 
are stressed out about this. And I think you can take some simple steps. We always say, start small. And some people think that social media is the place to build a following. And that's certainly one of the biggest places over the last 10 to 15 years. But we know some writers who are like one of the ones authors that we're working with right now doesn't have a big social media platform, but he's writing a book for his business community and he's networked into his associations and stuff. So the publisher saw that and said, oh, he has a platform. He, he is someone that we would publish. So this is a problem that you have, whether you're publishing by yourself, you're self-publishing or with a hybrid publishing or with a traditional publisher. We say this over and over again, you have the same problem. And the problem is how are you going to sell your book? And your traditional publisher, if that's what you aspire to, that publisher can't help you with that. And, and so you have to solve that problem. So as you think about your writing life, let's say that you've made this goal that you want to start writing and make writing a part of your life, which I think is a wonderful goal, then building a following should be part of that. And it doesn't have to be this huge thing. But even if you self-publish your book, you're, you want you want to have an email list larger than just your mom, your great aunt Alma, and uh, your five cousins, right? You want more than that. And so it doesn't have to be a mass audience, but it'd be nice to have maybe 100 people that could read the book. That's how you extend influence. And then those 100 people, if it's good writing, it's a good topic, it's a good idea, we'll hopefully refer that book That's to right. Others. That's how books sell, right? That's exactly how books sell. But you sells. need that minimum viable audience like we like to talk about. So you've got to start building that audience for your writing. The final point, point eight, is you don't understand the importance of relationships. And I love this point. I'm glad that you added it in, Dave, because the way I got my foot into writing for Shelter Magazines and ultimately becoming a field editor was I knew the managing editor of the magazine that I wanted to write for. We had a relationship. We knew her through mutual friends and just the world of vintage that I am part of. So I had never written for a shelter magazine before. I do lots of writing on Instagram and write about stuff that flea market style would be interested in. So I asked her, I said, can I write an article for you free of charge? I won't charge you for it. I just want you to see if I can write and if the writing fits the style for your magazine. And so I did that and that turned into really like a, I think I'm going five-year relationship and I published many, many, many articles with them and also extended my editorial reach at, and in general. So you just don't know where relationships can lead. And sometimes you just have to ask, you have to be courageous <laughs> and, and, and just ask because nobody's really going to ask you for anything. I mean, that is the big takeaway. You, you have to, at some point, believe in yourself and believe in your idea. And sometimes just ask if you have that connection. This is such a huge point. And the nuance to this is the insight about the psychology of an editor is this. And when I moved from being an editor at a, at a publishing house where people were always reaching out to me, I had no shortage of manuscripts. I had no shortage of attention that was paid to me because I was an editor. And then I started a business. I left that and started, and all of a sudden the phone did not ring. I did not get emails and I had to learn how to sell. And the one thing I learned about selling when I started my business back uh, almost 20 years ago was 
that you have to build relationships. An editor doesn't need to build relationships because everybody wants something from him or her. So an editor is trying to screen you out. And so this is really important to understand about editors. They're looking, they're playing the prevent defense because they're inundated. And, and so what you did was so important, which is, hey, I'll do anything. I'll work for free. I just want to, and you start to, maybe you do need to start with some free articles and write for people. And this relational piece is so huge. And so don't let this get lost on you. And whether it's, whether it's you're trying to find an agent and you find an agent that'll actually respond to your email says, no, you know, it's not a good fit, but I just want to tell you, I want to encourage you. If somebody says something like that, send an email back that just is grateful. Be grateful. Don't ask for anything else. These little things can build relationships that over time can be productive, really productive. That is such a wonderful, positive note to end on, Dave. So those are eight reasons why editors may be ignoring you. And we hope that you can at least take one of those ideas and focus on them that this week. Maybe you're beyond the craft of writing and you need to start working on the crowd, or maybe your idea isn't formalized yet and it's not sharp enough and you need to go back to that idea. But we hope you can take one of these points and really make some progress on your next writing project. All right, Dave, words of the episode. We may have gotten rid of our progress reports, but we have not gotten rid of the words of the episode. <laughs> We're partial to this, right? Yeah. So, so do you want to go first? I'll let you go first. So Where, I'll go first. Uh, yeah. The word I'm going to use to, or to reveal today is desultory. Is that how you say it? I've yes. always said it desultory. wrong. I've always said desultory. That's how I've always said it, Dave. <laughs> and I, I listened to it this morning. It's desultory. Desultory. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad we're doing words of the episode because I've been saying it wrong for years. <laughs> and I always thought it had something to do with kind of an insult because it had that salt in the middle. But desultory has, refers to lacking a plan or action or enthusiasm. And it's often related to a conversation, like going constantly from one subject to another in a half-hearted, desultory, unfocused way. Actually, somebody once said, if you're pronouncing words wrong, it's probably because you're reading a lot and you're not hearing them. <laughs> so we can just say you read a lot and <laughs> it's all right if you mispronounce because people- That don't makes me people, feel better. Right. People don't use vocabulary words in day-to-day -day life. So last night we were in bed. It was probably loud, about 11. And my son, who is a night owl, came into our room. And that's always when he chooses to talk with us. And I'm ready for bed and he's wide awake. And he said, I learned a new word today. And it is- Axorius. And I said, Davis, are you sure that's how you say it? And so he went and did the little, you know, he listened to it like you just did desultory and that is how you say it. And I'd never heard it. And the reason why he came across it is because there's this word in popular culture right now, especially among young people called simp, which it means the same thing as axorius. And the original meaning of simp is a silly or foolish person, but it is now used to describe a man who's overly submissive to his female counterpart's desire. So it's kind of like being whipped, you know? So <laughs> axorius is having or showing an excessive or submissive fondness for one's wife. So it's very specific about a man towards his wife and kind of doing anything that he or she wants because and kind of putting away your desires because she kind of rules, rules the world that you live in. So anyway, exorious is my word. And I 
now also know the word simp, which I didn't know before. <laughs> what a great word. I have never, I've heard the word, but I did not know what it meant. It's such a great word to describe this excessive submissiveness, especially from a man to a, to yes. a wife. And you see this, right? So as you get older, you don't have as much, but early on, you'll see past the passive male who is always trying to please his wife. And I, I guess it goes the other way, probably more so in many ways where the woman's always trying to please a the man. And that, There's another those, word for that though. <laughs> yes. But they're both dysfunctional in, in their own ways. Right. And my wife would probably say, Jana would probably say, man, I wish Dave was uxorious. No, she wouldn't want, she wouldn't want that. He She's wouldn't probably. fly fish so much. <laughs> <laughs> so again, this is one of those words that if you used in writing, it would be used in really a derogatory kind of way. I don't think you can really use this word no. to describe somebody positively. It really is, it's a derogatory it speaks of somebody's character. So anyway, maybe we can use this in future writing someday, Dave, or maybe you yeah. can use it to um, <laughs> with one of your friends. You can say, you're so uxorious. <laughs> wow, those are two great words, desultory and uxorious. They are, and they are great words to end this episode. We are so grateful that you joined us for our first joint podcast of 2022. And we hope you find some time this week to write. So I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.